0: Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. We continue our discussions of racism and white privilege in Mendocino County, California, with a 30-year-old Brazilian-born woman currently studying for her master's degree in social work at the California State University at Hayward. Josiara Bayer was adopted and came to the United States at age 11 months with her single, white American mother and grew up in Ukiah, California. A transracial adoption, which may also be an international adoption, is the primary focus of Josiara Bayer's plan of study for her master's degree. Sharing her personal experiences, she describes being told she's different, what it was like for her to grow up in a white family, and her feelings about white privilege. When Jossie, as she is often known, and I met in the studios of Radio Curious on March 23, 2015, she began with her earliest memories.
1: My earliest memory, and I think it's very common, especially for adoptees who are considered, um, the term is transracial adoptees, so therefore we're adopted into a family that is a, of a different race than what we are. Um, so my earliest memory as a young child is noticing and being told that I'm different, and that being told in a way that wasn't always Um, appeasing or or very soft in the way that it was spoken because I think just kids can you know sometimes say the darndest things and I think it was also spoken not just verbally but non-verbally as well.
0: Do you remember what was said?
1: I mean the common question of course from like my peers would be why are you one color and your family's another color?
0: Did you have an answer?
1: I always knew what the answer was because I was adopted. But I think when you're, you know, however young I was, which was, you know, probably like preschool age, that's kind of as far back as I can remember those questions. You don't really formulate your answers so logically or thought out as you would, of course, as you grow older. And so often my answer would either be to ignore it or to make up some type of story that seemed to be acceptable to others in terms of, oh, you know, because I was raised by a single parent saying that my other parent who would never be around was my skin color. And so that's how then it would work within our family.
0: You mentioned that not always in, in words, but in body language was were indications from your peers.
1: Right. And I mean, I think those indications weren't even just from my peers, but also from adults as well, just in terms of either pointing or kind of blatant stares would be more common than not. In some ways, that kind of stuck longer than the verbal questions would.
0: Tell me more. It stuck longer.
1: In terms of, um, it was kind of, it's harder to forget that because again, those never seem to really be in terms of something that was good or caring intent, but more of looking as kind of something looks wrong or what's wrong with you. Those kind of gestures or stares in that manner, not of, oh, how, how nice that looks.
0: So how did you meld those issues? from the way your peers spoke to you and perhaps some adults stared and the way you were treated by your mother and adult friends?
1: As I can look back now, having a lot more perspective, of course, I can see that, you know, it was kind of like living in two different worlds in a way in terms of when I was, you know, within my family or family friends or my own friends or, or kind of people who were in my inner community. I felt that I wasn't looked at then in those relationships and in those encounters as being different, but it was more in terms of outside of that inner close-knit community. So it was kind of this balance that I was always experiencing of knowing where I felt comfortable and where I felt like I wasn't being looked at for being of a different skin color and being of a minority as opposed to then where I was.
0: Is that still the situation now Um, that you're a woman of 30 years old?
1: I, I would say it really still is. I mean, I don't think much has changed there, really. I would say it's different when I'm in a more diverse area. Um, But overall, definitely, in some regards, still the same.
0: The it that is still the same. Can you describe that?
1: In terms of being viewed and looked at as for who I am and who my character is first, as that being the immediate thing people are interacting with, or is it my skin color is the immediate thing that people are interacting with? Or trying to figure out.
0: How do you discern that difference?
1: It's interesting because it can be tricky in one sense, but it can be very clear um, and upfront in another. It it comes in, in all forms in a way in terms of, you know, somebody's body language, somebody's, you know, a verbal interaction. So I think it's just how accepting the interaction is.
0: Can you give some examples?
1: Yeah, let's see. There's so many examples, really. they can be something as simple as ca- and casual as, you know, I'm going to meet my family for dinner. This has happened on numerous occasions where, you know, they're already there and I'm going to meet them. So I get to the restaurant. It could be a more well-to-do restaurant that is not maybe you know, appeals or to more, um, you know, people of color or more diversity, or just could it be because in that area, you know, in a less diverse community. And immediately it's kind of like this kind of looks or kind of unspoken of what, what could you be doing here? What business would you want here? And then I'll say, oh, I'm here to meet my family. And then it's still this look of, um, I think you may be, confused or mistaken because there's nobody else here of color <laughs> and then I'll point to where my family is and even then still sometimes we'll be kind of like a huh oh it must be okay it could be a simple interaction like that.
0: Not personally having an experience like that what do you do about it?
1: You know most often I honestly just brush it off because it happens so frequently in a way, but also because it's happened so much throughout my life that it's kind of like it's expected. Like if it if it doesn't happen, it's kind of like, whoa, that's, that's different. In a way, it's like I'm used to those, you know, having to deal with those interactions or those types of looks. Although it's definitely still can sometimes get under my skin, I, I don't let it really truly... Affect me on a deeper level.
0: Let me um, let me ask you this, uh, Josie Bayer: um, the difference between Ukiah, California, where you grew up and graduated high school, and where you live now in the San Francisco Bay Area?
1: For me personally, the difference is just being in a larger, more diverse area um that's always been something that i've craved and desired and felt like was where i need to be not that i don't appreciate you know my hometown and where i grew up and how it you know raised me but i always felt that this wasn't my resting place
0: in terms of um the way people treat you because of the color of your skin in the san francisco bay area versus ukiah
1: i would say that i don't get as many you know interactions myself where that's so much at the forefront of what's going on as it was when i was here in ukiah not saying that it doesn't happen at all because it definitely still does and you know we have plenty of examples of that just in you know our news and the media but um For me, it's to a lesser degree,
0: I would say. I'd like you to share with us what has drawn you to the graduate work that you're engaged in now. But before you answer, I'd like to say that we're visiting with Josiara Bayer, who lives in the San Francisco Bay Area, who is moving towards her final year as a graduate student seeking a master's in social work. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel.
1: As far back as I can remember, I've always had an interest in um, kind of being the voice for those who are underrepresented and underserved. So whether it be, you know, through race, um, any other type of underrepresentation um, or lack of privilege. I've always had a desire to kind of help those populations. Um, Currently, and actually for the past two years, I've gotten connected with uh, an adoption organization, PACT, that specializes in um, really supporting and advocating for transracial adoptees and their families at large. And so that's really where um, my passion Really lies um, because that's my personal experience and personal story.
0: Tell us about that kind of work.
1: I currently work for them as one of their youth programming leaders. So I specifically more so work with the tween and teen age youth who are either themselves transracial adoptees or are in a family where there is a transracial adoptee. And so we. Um, basically sp- provide monthly kind of support, what we call our teen and tween club, where these youth can get together and we provide both education um, within, you know, these areas and kind of how to cope with their basically life circumstance of being within a family of mixed races. Adoption brings one level of complexity, of course, to a family family, Component, but then when you bring in mixed races, you're you're bringing in a whole nother tier of issues and struggles.
0: How do you find those tiers of struggle different than you, your personal experience?
1: I would say I actually find them similar, but I think what is different for these particular youth, there's more support. And there's more awareness for um, transracial adoption, because I can definitely know when I was growing up, I mean, none of this really existed. And so I think that's what partly drives my passion, because as much as I'm giving and working with the youth and their families currently, it's also kind of a healing practice for myself and getting what I always deeply felt was needed and yearned for, but didn't know it at the time because it didn't exist. So it's kind of this dual relationship of both serving and healing.
0: When you say deeply yearned for.
1: The yearning was to know of and be in connection with other families that were made up like mine. Because really growing up, there was only one other family who turns out to be, you know, one of my very good and best friends, um, who was another transracial adoptee and also an international adoptee. And throughout here and there, there were other families that I had met, but never had a really connection with. But even just having that one never seemed quite like enough to feel that connection and looking around and seeing that, you know, there's others like you. You're not different or alone in this ma- manner.
0: So now as a as a person of uh, 30 living in a much larger metropolitan area, do you find peers who have the same experience as as an adult transracial adoptee?
1: You know, actually I have which which is great because um You know, as much as PACT focuses on youth, they also provide great support for adult adoptees and especially adult transracial adoptees. We've really kind of started our own network. We each attest to how important and vital it is for us, even though we don't have that connection on a very frequent basis. Just knowing that it's there. And um, to have that kind of support is comforting a
0: Jossie Bayer, I'd like to talk about uh, concepts of white privilege, uh, how you have experienced it, and how you have uh, been aware of it but unable to experience it.
1: Yeah. It actually wasn't till more recently in kind of my own, you know, discussions with others and kind of reflection that I even really realized um, that I sometimes carry white privilege due to the fact that um, my family is white who raised me because I was always seeming to more often than not be pointed out for the fact that I wasn't like my family in terms of looks that therefore that wasn't right-handed, allowed for me. Um, But then as I've gotten older and kind of moved away, I've realized and especially tried to find my niche in... Um, more so communities of color and realizing I don't yet really fit there either because here I was not raised um, by a family of color that um, I've realized that I do kind of have this white privilege card in a way that I can sometimes use at my disposal. And I think sometimes I have used it at my disposal Um, in situations where I knew that I wasn't going to get any further um, without it, should I say.
0: What were some of those situations?
1: Poignant ones, I can actually remember, happened. Actually, it was in Sonoma County when I was um, living there for my undergrad, and I was needing to go to the ER for a specific medical reason. On more than one occasion, I had to make some visits there, and I started to quickly learn that the way that I was treated if I went by myself as opposed to the way I was treated if I went with my mom or if I went with one of my friends who was white was starkly different Um, as opposed to where I was at one point blatantly kind of judged and looked at as uh, drug-seeking when I was, you know, in actual pain. But that wasn't being recognized because there is apparently, and I didn't know this till after the fact when somebody had explained it to me, a stereotype of young black women going to ERs who are drug-seeking and just kind of wanting to get a high or a fix. Um, so therefore, I was without much screening or... um being looked into in terms of my certain circumstance, therefore put in this category of that's all she's here for. So just give her the drugs she wants and get her out of here. Whereas opposed to when I went to the ER for a same situation, but I had my mom there, that wasn't even a, considered an issue or a thought. But no, let's take this woman's health concerns seriously, and let's do all the tests we can and cater to her.
0: Can you share with us the uh, health issues that we're talking about?
1: I was having some really bad um, back pain that had to end result have to do with kidney stone.
0: But excruciatingly painful. Exactly.
1: Yes, yes. Well, I think overall... Um, why I kind of enjoy doing conversations like this or just engaging in these types of discussions is because it just brings awareness to issues and matters that I think are often people try to suppress. Or, I mean, I've even had some friends who really believe that there's not much racial issues around anymore, which completely baffles me. But um, so I think just in terms of bringing these discussions forward brings awareness to the facts and the matters that really have an important voice and and message. One of the biggest points I've come to realize just through um, my own experiences and as well as my studies is just the recognition for, you know, anybody, no matter what race you are. Um, or or where you come from in terms of just recognizing what privileges you have and what privileges you don't. And I think oftentimes as a person of color, you know, I am, again, I can only speak for myself. There have been times when I've thought that I really don't have much privilege because I think that's how it was portrayed to me. But um, then in, in retrospect, really realizing kind of what privilege I do have in certain areas and really kind of utilizing that as, as a resource and a, and a forefront to push past and push to where I am now.
0: When you talk about carrying white privilege, what do you mean?
1: Being white or Caucasian is, in our society, the dominant race. And so when we're looking at the aspects of race, if you're anything but that, you have a lesser amount of privilege that you carry and you walk with without even having to really, I feel, speak or stand up for it. It's just kind of given. As opposed to if you're a person of color you don't automatically get those tokens of privilege. So when I say I carry or can utilize white privilege, it's basically kind of that manner in being able to tag along from either when I'm with my white friends or within my family, or just the resources and things I've been exposed to as growing up in a white family that I likely may not have gotten or would not have come as easy if I were in a family of color.
0: When you say tokens of white privilege, what are the tokens?
1: In terms of going into a store, for example, not being followed, or going into a nice restaurant, not being kind of looked at like, can she really afford this? Should we really cater to her or them or him?
0: And the more subtle examples?
1: I guess I can only speak from my own experience. So, this is also an experience of being a female. Subtle example could be in terms of what's seen as beauty, oftentimes in the larger mainstream of things. Of course, beauty comes in all different forms and colors, but especially growing up um, in a, what I like to say, minimally diverse town as Ukiah, um, what was seen as beauty and kind of emphasized as that's the it thing was the blonde, straight hair, skinny, blue eyes, and anything outside of that was not so desirable.
0: Well, Jasiara Arabeer, I want to thank you for being with us on Radio Curious. And before we close, can you share with us a eureka or an aha moment that changed your life, that pointed you perhaps in a new direction or gave you insight?
1: One of the biggest eureka moments for me was actually when I first moved away to college. Growing up, Ukiyo was all I kind of knew. I mean, I kind of got sometimes taste or experiences of you know areas like the Bay Area um, when we'd go for day trips or things of that nature overnights, but going out on my own in a larger, more diverse area was the first time where I really felt like I can fit in somewhere. Not that I had found where I fit in, but that there was hope.
0: That implies that perhaps you didn't feel like you fit in here in Ukiah? Yes. Can you tell us about that?
1: Um. I mean, as, as much as of the community that I had and I still love and appreciate to this day, I never quite felt like I fit in because I always felt like I had to. to more of the outside world, outside of my immediate community, carry an explanation or a sign as to, one, why I look different than my family, and two, just being one of the few minorities here in this town.
0: And Josie, can you uh, tell us what you'd like to do with the rest of your One Precious Life?
1: My overall biggest thing is just continuing to give back and to speak out on issues and topics that matter and that important and that kind of don't get the light that they deserve.
0: And finally, is there a book that you could recommend to our listeners?
1: The book that I would definitely recommend and... I'm a big fan of this author, is Janla Van Zant, who is a spiritual life coach, an ordained minister, a lecturer. She wears so many hats. One of her actually her older books is In the Meantime. And why I kind of chose this book to recommend and why it was really stuck with me is it really just brings to light and talks about what is you know, anyone's meantime time, because I think we all go through life and we go through phases of mean times where we're not at the goal where we want to be at or we're not at the destination where we maybe thought we saw fit. But we're just continually trying to get there and part of trying to get to wherever that destination or, or goal may be is um, and doing it successfully and attaining it would be working on self. And so the book really focuses on what it is to work on yourself and what that is in terms of its connection to love and self-love because without that, you really can't push past and go forward successfully or give to others.
0: Well, Josiara Bayer, thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious.
1: You're very welcome. <music>
0: Transracial adoptee, born in Brazil, Josiara Bayer was brought to the United States by her single white American mother when she was 11 months old. Raised in Ukiah, California, Josi is currently studying for her master's degree in social work with a focus on transracial adoptions. The book Josiara Bayer recommends is In the Meantime, Finding Yourself and the Love You Want by Ianla Van Zandt. This interview was recorded on March twenty-third, 2015. There are over 500 editions of Radio Curious on our website, radiocurious.org. They're free to listen, download, and share as you wish. The email address is curious@RadioCurious.org. at radiocurious.org or snail mail at 280 North Oak Street, Ukiah, that's U-K-I-A-H, California, 95482. And the phone is 707-462-6541. Christina Anestad is the assistant producer, and I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.